0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight, for my monster from his slab
1: began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he
0: the man. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It on a he did the he
2: did the monster. Match. Thank you for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is episode one hundred and nineteen. Today we're going to be talking about monster movies. Uh, my name is uh, Danny Anderson. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And today I'm joined by. Uh, another uh, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College, uh, his name is Nathan Gilmore. Nathan, how you doing today? I'm hanging in, Danny. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Feeling a little better. I've been under the weather lately, but I think I'm over the weather now, I guess. I don't know. Um, and then uh, also we're joined by Michael Farmer, who's an assistant professor of English at uh, Crown College. It's St. Bonaduce, Minnesota. Is that <laughs> I wish it was St.
0: Bonaduce. It's St. Bonifacius. <laughs>
2: St. Bonaduce
0: is where the Axe Body Spray Factory is.
2: I see, okay. That makes sense. Well, how are you gentlemen doing today?
0: Oh, I'm pretty good. All right. How are you, Danny?
2: Well, I'm fine. Um, Apparently we have some listener email. Uh, Michael, do you want to take that?
0: Yeah, this is from our listener, Isabel Ayer. She says she's been meaning to tack this on as an episode suggestion to the Jewish American Lit episode response. It's been moldering in my draft folder for weeks. Busy. But while I'm thinking about it, what about an episode on children's literature? That seems like a good low-key topic. This is an idea we have kicked around for some time. I believe we've talked about having Nathan's wife, who is a kind of a specialist in that area. Come on, didn't we talk about that, or am I... Uh, well,
1: we had talked about her coming on for a a, a young adult literature young adult episode, but I, I I presented the idea to her and she wasn't all that interested so
0: <laughs> you know you know if, if this is something you guys are interested in, I have a colleague at Crown who teaches children's literature who I'm sure would be happy to come on and talk about it. He's a fan of the show. Alrighty, so maybe maybe that's something we can do. She also says, uh, "Listening to your romantic poetry episodes, though I've also listened to some of the more recent episodes." Nathan, you can stop apologizing for pronouncing my last name correctly, <laughs> compared to the Comcast cable call center that transcribed it over the phone as Isabel Y R E R, which now appears on all my bills. You're doing okay. Comcast uh, is the I... devil, though. <laughs> I mean that that is an e- that is as evil a company as there is.
1: Yeah, but they give me fast internet, so I...
0: (laughs) (laughs) You you know, when you cancel your fast internet, you're going to have to drag all of your equipment yourself to the Comcast Center and stand in a long line holding it uh, to cancel.
1: Oh, I've done that every time I've moved, so I'm I'm not worried.
0: Oh, man. Anyway, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Isabel. And you may get your children's lit episode. Or you may not. It depends on how we feel. (laughs) We also All had right. we also had a message from uh, David Grubbs on the Facebook page, which I feel uh, which I feel the need to uh, mention. He says, "I'm not short, Dag Nabbit." <laughs> <laughs> In response to my calling him short on the, I think it was the Return of the Jedi episode. So it was indeed. <laughs> I, I, I still remember him being short, but again, almost everybody seems short to me. So maybe maybe David is six two, and I don't know it. <laughs> well,
2: however short he is, I'm sure I'm shorter. So, well, uh, today uh, we're going to be talking about monster movies, and I know that by the time this uh, hits uh, the internet, it's going to be a couple weeks past Halloween. But uh, the idea arose just before Halloween, and uh, we decided to kind of go ahead and go with it. Um, and so, I want to sort of start today by kind of giving us a uh, a little personal entryway into this. So, horror is a a genre that's especially good at eliciting personal reactions in a viewer. So I think it might be best to begin this discussion with each of us talking about some personal experiences. And are there any specific movies or books that you can recall having an impact on you, either positively or negatively? Nathan, you want to take start?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think of uh, horror movies and monster movies as having really either positive or negative psychological impacts, but I do remember their sort of social place. Uh, when I was a teenager, especially on the young end of the teenage years, they were a sort of rite of passage. Uh, the, I guess the degree of intensity of horror movies that one had viewed was a, a sort of mark of prestige among the 13-year-old set in Plainfield, Indiana, so uh, it was definitely one of those things where it was a game of cat and mouse with one's parents, a game of... You know, who can watch the scariest movie with one's peers? Uh, You know, looking back, I mean, like most things that seemed so very important when I was 13, uh, this was yet another example of who can eat the spiciest chili pepper. Uh, But that's the place that horror movies held uh, in my own experience. Now, when I was about that age, I mean, that's when you were in the sequels ad nauseum for the Freddy Krueger and the Jason Voorhees franchises. Uh, so there weren't a whole lot of, I guess you would say, new ideas coming around. I mean, I still remember when the first Scream movie came out, it was something of a novelty in our circles because it was a, a... I, I guess an explicitly self-referential horror movie. So, I mean, I, that that's sort of the turning point that I remember where there were horror movies talking about horror movies, and that was, you know, in my mind, sort of a a change in the genre. So, Michael, how about you? What was your horror movie experience? I
0: didn't really watch them when I was a kid. I would say I had more experience with uh, Frankenberry cereal than any kind of actual (laughs) monster movie. But I remember um, a copy of The Shining made the rounds in my youth group. And like you say, it was kind of a rite of passage. It It was something you watched even though you were terrified of it. And uh, I made it about to the point where those two creepy little girls accosted Danny Torrance in the hallway, and uh, <laughs> then I turned it off and had nightmares. I, I I really did. I'm not exaggerating. I had nightmares and could not sleep for two three weeks after watching half an hour of that. And and like it took me a year to go. I found it on like TBS or something and watched an edited version. And like I I, I am afraid now to watch The Simpsons parody of the shining that movie scares me so badly so uh, suffice it to say I am not a person who is made for horror films I uh, I scare easily I have to watch them I have to watch them in broad daylight and, and I'm, <laughs> a, I'm especially afraid of the ones that are not and I say this even though the, the shining is supernatural I, I'm especially afraid of the ones that are not supernatural I don't like the serial killer pictures the home invasion movies stuff like that. But I've never seen most of the classics, I've never seen The Exorcist, I've never seen The Fly, I've never seen, oh I don't know, name a classic and I probably haven't seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm terrified of these movies. I watched, uh, well I'll I'll get into it later, but I watched a movie especially for this podcast and uh, I had to go down to our laundry room in the dark (laughs) uh, in the middle of it and uh, that was an unpleasant experience for me so I'm, I'm kind of a weenie. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, you're you're perfect then. That's great. Um, and actually, I that's both of your examples I can kind of build off of. I totally remember like, what Nathan's talking about with those Friday the Thirteenth movies. Uh, there was sort of a rite of passage. There were like it was became a, a cultural thing to do was to go to these movies when they opened and have sort of like mystery science theater like commentary for each killing in the Friday the Thirteenth movies as they were coming out. It was mm-hmm. just sort of a way for adolescent boys to sort of be funny and, and, and witty and cool. Um, but also the, the example I was going to give was also from The Shining. Um, and it's actually around that same scene that Michael's talking about with the two little girls. I uh, loved, I grew up on horror movies, uh, particularly sort of the, the kind of hammer uh, horror films, the English horror films from like the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s. Uh, I particularly like them, I think, because of their... Like atmosphere, they just sort of there's, you know, foggy moors and broken castles and and uh, old you know Victorian outfits and these things and I I just love the atmosphere of those movies, but uh, I had never actually seen The Shining until uh, I was actually an adult and I was living in New York and uh, some friends of mine and I watched it. And uh, it had a, a powerful impact on me as well. And this is like almost like supernatural story I'm about to share to, with the world here. But um, my friends all know about it. It became a joke for a long time. But uh, I, after I saw The Shining, and remember the, the little boy's name is Danny, like me, and he sees these two girls in the hallway that Michael's talking about who've been murdered. Uh, I, for months after that, began to see in New York City, everywhere I went, these twins, these redheaded twins that were maybe my age, uh, they were adults, but they would—they dressed like old country people, like from like uh, like the Amish uh, outfits or something like that, and they wore matching outfits as adults, and they had long red hair, and and they so weirdly like reminded me of those two little girls and it was just such a strange thing i would see them everywhere i went in the city i would happen to bump into these girls and i started you know sharing this with my friends at there at the time and um and they were all thinking i was crazy or not but and then one day i was working in this bookstore in uh lincoln triangle and uh i th- here sure enough they're coming towards my desk and uh, i grabbed my friend eric by the shoulder i tell me that you can see these girls right and and uh and he got all angry because now he was going to start seeing them and it was just a coincidence they were just two girls that i happened to keep bumping into uh in the city everywhere i went uh but it was such a strange like bleeding over into my reality from having watched this movie that uh I, it's something i'll never forget and so to this day that movie has like a very like powerful resonance with me just because i felt like i experienced some of its uncanniness uh in my own life Did and they ask and I you ultimately... to come play with them no, they didn't. I never spoke to them. And then, even after I was married, I went back to visit the city with my uh, wife, and um, and I saw them then uh, again. Like uh, this was a couple years later, I bumped into them again. Still, do I don't know what they were doing about like what their lives were like. I have no idea who they were. I never braved actually speaking to them. There was no room two thirty seven anywhere around there. So, uh, but uh, it was uh, a really uh, just a strange experience that. Uh, it's part of the magic of horror movies for me. Is this the strangeness of it. it? It's just like you feel like you cross over a plane of our mundane reality, and and uh, that's one of the things I love about it. And even years later, I ended up writing about The Shining uh, and for my dissertation exams. Like it was one of my one of my questions dealt with that, and so uh, it was something that it's lived with me, you know, uh, for a long time. So
0: I I have to tell a story, a horrible story, on behalf of my wife who is not here to tell it um when she was i don't know 10 or 11 she went to a little girl's slumber party and they watched the original texas chainsaw massacre which, uh-huh. I, which I i should say i've never seen because i don't like slasher films and um afterwards uh the girls the host father uh served them all chili <laughs> <laughs> so talk about talk about the movie seeping into your consciousness <laughs>
2: that is a fine movie actually though um it's much better than sort of a run-of-the-mill slasher movie
0: so um, well ha- i will have to take your word for it you know <laughs> I, I i'm afraid of these movies but i'm kind of fascinated by them and so every couple months i start reading like synopses of them mm. and even that frightens me
2: that's interesting all right very good well Michael, let me just kind of throw the next question at you then, since you're so fascinated with this as a topic. Uh, horror movies do occupy a really prominent position in our memory of the early film industry in particular. Uh, both in the silent era and during the first few years of the talkies, uh, monster movies were were popular. And, and even today, they get treated with a sort of critical and academic awe that people just sort of... Uh, endlessly study every nuance of these movies. Can you give us a, a brief uh historical overview of the horror movie as a genre and then maybe speculate about why why it's so effective?
0: Sure. Um as you note it is it is one of the earliest film genres. The first horror film comes out in the late eighteen nineties and it is a, a Georges Millet film called uh, La Monoir du Diable, uh which I have not seen and you know probably won't because horror films scare me. Uh, but, it, but it was a very popular early genre. Even even in the 20s, you have film versions of classic horror novels, Frankenstein, Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, Nosferatu, which is an early vampire film. Uh, you have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You have The Phantom of the Opera. You have a weird German expressionist art film called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm-hmm. Um, but the golden age of the Hollywood movie monster is the 1930s because that's where you get these Universal movie monsters that everybody knows and loves, um, the Dracula, the, the Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Monster. This is the age of Bela Lugosi, who has kind of ever after defined what it means to be Dracula, and of uh, Boris Karloff, who who plays Frankenstein's monster and the monster and the monster and the Mummy. These kind of staggering, wordless monsters. Um, he's also, of course, the uh, the narrator of the cartoon version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Mm. Um, the 50s, you move really from horror into sci-fi to some extent. I mean, the 50s is the golden age of kind of space-age sci-fi, but um, you still have some classic monster movies. You have The Blob, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man, if you want to count that, The Thing from Another World, which becomes... John Carpenter's The Thing in the in the 80s, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, all of those are, are monster movies to some extent or another. And then, um, starting in the 60s, but especially in the 70s and 80s, um, the horror the horror genre moves from kind of monster movies to slasher movies. Uh, so, I mean, Nathan has already invoked Friday the 13th and A Nightmare on Elm Street, and, and you know, there's a whole bunch of lesser slasher movies. Um so much so that in the '90s and early 2000s, you do kind of get a falling off of horror movies altogether. Just kind of a, because the uh, the the market had been so inundated with them, they they become less popular at that point. Other than the, the kind of self-conscious horror movies like scream and, and and the rip-offs of scream and then really you get a renewal in the last decade of of the horror genre and and often again the the horror movies that come out today are slasher movies or what's called torture porn and and more rarely monster movies i think there was a a remake of the wolfman a few years ago starring benicio del toro who is already kind of wolfish yeah. <laughs> um so yeah as for why they're popular I think it's because the worse the acting is and the lower budget the movie is, the scarier it actually ends up being because it, it puts you in this uncanny place. So if you think about the early films, because they're silent, because they're kind of jerky, because they're very poor quality, they, they suggest more mystery. And so that that makes them very effective, I think, for horror, which is, at least in some of its forms, about the suggestion of mystery and if you think about those slasher movies um think about how bad the acting is in them how 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 (laughs) i mean they're just terrible terrible performances right and and because the people are not acting as you recognize people to act um it it becomes scarier i think what do you think
1: yeah i think that's fair enough i think that also i mean the appeal of it is that I'm trying to think how to frame this. I mean, it, it is and and I'm referring specifically to the bad acting. I mean, it's one of those things that allows you a small bit of ironic distance from it so that you don't have to be entirely immersed in it. And therefore you can enjoy the terror a little bit more, if that makes any sense. Uh, You know, if the people aren't acting like people act, uh, then you, you have one more, arm's length that you can put between yourself and whatever reality it is that should be terrifying you
0: if you're able to do that which apparently i am not
1: <laughs> well i mean I, I and like danny was saying i mean that's the you know that's part of the joy of a horror flick is to make the snide comments about the bad acting and the you know the so on and so forth so i mean i maybe i am just a you know a a cold hearted horror movie watcher, but, uh, trying to think, I mean, was there a time when I was really just so immersed in a film like that, that I couldn't appreciate the really terrible acting. And I, I I can't think of any offhand.
0: You say that you oscillate between the twin poles of fear and uh, mockery nathan
1: <laughs> no i never do get to the fear of uh the pole of fear so i <laughs> I, I i still resist the metamodern
2: that's <laughs> yes, a little reference to last week yes yes sure. yes i i think that michael's point about the um how horror sort of works with some of the the kind of formal features of cinema uh, throughout its history uh, is a really good one, and, and I know that uh, one of my kind of mentors from grad school has written about this. His name is Rob Spadoni, and he's got a book called Uncanny Bodies, and he um, uh, talks about the early uh, Dracula, particularly in Frankenstein, uh, these 1931 movies that be, really inaugurate the Universal cycle of horror movies, um, and and he sort of talks about them as. Uh, well i mean nineteen thirty one is the year of the transition between uh like the the last of the silent movies and and to when it becomes all sound and so Dracula is this sort of right at this kind of like liminal space between these two technologies and part of what makes the uh the movies creepy and they're not, they don't scare us now. if you were to watch Dracula now. It seems very quaint and, and and sort of silly. There's no there's you don't even see fangs in this movie. It's very understated and and um and kind of operatic in a lot of ways. But um if you uh, uh to the audience then it, it was very kind of off putting and weird and not because of any sort of loud horror movie music or uh, any kind of screeching psycho knife you know music uh, in the background to uh, punctuate the horror but the the silence that is not actually silent it's actually got the crackling of sound in the background it had a, 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 a like a psychological effect basically on I think on on the audience at the time and I think it serves to make those things even today, those movies uh, very sort of otherworldly and, and I think that to me this is the um, the sort of unique contribution of horror movies in cinema is that they Acknowledge an otherworldly, and, and some we'll, we'll talk about uh this later in the podcast. But I think that this is one element of them that makes them uh instructive, I think, for a, a, a Christian uh viewer uh, th- that they sort of acknowledge an otherworld That it, uh in, in many cases now the sort of torture porn doesn't necessarily do that, as Michael says. But uh, in many of the, sort of the classical uh, like genres of horror, there is sort of uh, a, an explicit meditation on the other world. And I think that that's a, a really good point. And by the way, I think that that Wolfman that Michael is referencing, the remake, is actually a very interesting movie. Um, and maybe I'll get to that later. I think that Del Toro plays a, does a really good job playing that role and, and sort of re- revisiting it uh, for, for a new, uh, new era. But uh, so that that's uh, I think you guys hit on some really good points there. Um, well, Nathan, excuse me, uh, Frankenstein is a figure. Speaking of Boris Karloff uh, mm-hmm. and his sort of iconic. Uh, this is like when you think of horror movies, very much you have the image of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein is one of the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, uh, Frankenstein is a figure that has come to define horror in many ways. And yet its literary origins are pretty distinct from the kind of cinematic incarnation of that character. Can you talk about that novel uh, and give us a sense of some of the issues that it raises and how it deals with those issues, and then maybe speculate about why it's so firmly ingrained in our cultural imagination?
1: Certainly I can do that. Frankenstein uh, differs really from uh, The Mummy or Dracula or some of the other sort of human-sized Movie monsters in in that uh, he is a creation, a willful creation of a human being, uh, and that really sets him aside from these monsters that really emerge from a sort of dark horizon in the human consciousness, and it becomes something that is the human will uh, escaped from human intention. So in the early nineteenth century uh, when the novel is first published, I mean, it is really a meditation on the new sciences of biology, the new sciences of medicine, uh, these really startling advances in, in human knowledge and in human capability. Uh, and you know, the meditation goes, uh, to a fairly logical place, namely, uh, would it be even possible to create life in the way that God created life? Now, what's interesting about the novel is that these things arise not from new technology by any means, uh, but by Victor Frankenstein's experimentations with forbidden medieval lore. Uh, So in some ways, it is at the same time a meditation on technology and a sort of romantic speculation about what was lost uh, in in the transition, if you will, to a sort of rationalistic universe. Now, what's interesting about uh the creature, which is what the novel calls him, not the monster uh is that in- in Mary Shelley's novel, what you've got is not the lumbering mumbling uh tower that you know oh and I, that Boris Karlov made so famous. I couldn't think of his name there for a second uh but rather you have this. Really, I mean, a, a a human being who emerges into the world as an adult body and really who emerges into the world as a post-adult body because he's made up of dead parts. So he experiences a sort of infancy and a sort of adolescence, a desire to connect to other human beings. And unlike Boris Karloff's version, uh, the novel's version actually ends up learning to read. Uh, he ends up reading Paradise Lost and realizes that his plight is very similar to that of Adam in Milton's Biblical Epic, that he never wanted to be created, and yet he is being punished for deviating from a script that, you know, made no sense to him. Uh so it's very, very I yeah, I Miltonic I is really the only word I can think of for it, uh, in a way that the movie version of Frankenstein never is. So as far as the big sort of philosophical questions that arise, I mean, one of them is obviously the question of life. Uh, What is it for something to be alive? What is it for something to elicit responses of responsibility from the people around it? Uh, Another big one, of course, is the alien. I mean, how alien does an entity have to be uh, before it becomes inhuman and how much common ground does there have to be before an entity is one of us. So, for instance, if your creature can read Milton, does that make it human? Um, So, I mean, those are are some of the big questions that come up. Uh, Michael, have, have you ever read that novel, or are you mainly familiar with Frankenberry?
0: I'm mainly familiar with Frankenberry. We are reading that in my technology and art class, though, because it's such a, at least it has a reputation of being such a parable about the dangers of, you know, an overreaching human... Ambition in the form of science and technology. Sure, sure. I didn't sure. know he learned to read. And Certainly didn't know he read Paradise Lost. If that's what oh, makes yeah. you, if that if that's what makes you a human being, my uh, my freshmen are in a lot of trouble.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, and I think that uh, the idea of science harkening uh, back to something medieval is interesting. I've always, you know, given my, you know, research interests, I have a hard time not seeing a, a little kind of uh revision of the the folktale of the golem. Uh when I when I think of Frankenstein and uh, which is sort of this Jewish um uh folktale basically about about this you have this rabbi, Rabbi Lowe, who uh <clears throat> kind of divines from the stars that uh, the local Jewish ghetto, the community is about to uh, be under attack with Pogrom. And um, there's uh, uh, in order to defend themselves, he sort of uh, performs this sort of black magic sort of ritual and creates this uh, giant man out of clay, basically, and, uh, and bestows this sort of artificial kind of life upon him. And this giant man then kind of both protects the community, then becomes too dangerous for it as, at the same time. And mm-hmm. so has to be sort of brought back down. And I think that this is kind of a model that you can see that, that that sort of narrative archetype is sort of something you can see in many things. I, I think in many ways, uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman is sort of a, a, a golem sort of character, uh, uh, like a sort of modern invention of, or modern reinvention of that myth where you have this sort of figure who the community needs and yet fears at the same time. And so, uh, it's something that I think uh, has a powerful resonance like culturally across cultures as well. Um, and, um, and I, I can't help but see that connection between Frankenstein and what Frankenstein is doing as a, as a kind of human achievement uh, that is also dangerous. And the, the fact that he uh, harkens back in the novel to the sort of medieval traditions uh, does, I think, draw a connection between science and black magic as this sort of uh, – uh, enticing, uh, productive thing that is also, uh, dangerous if left unchecked. And I think that's one of the the ways that Frankenstein is, uh, typically received, I think. And so, um, whenever I, I it's hard for me to imagine that the, the golem wasn't in Mary Shelley's subconscious, at least, uh, when she was, uh, like conceiving of this character in the storyline, but, uh, which, uh, by the way, there's an excellent silent movie, Version of the Golem called dare Golem, um by george wagner and, and it's uh it's public domain you could stream it on youtube for free uh, highly recommended uh like vision of uh of of a great silent film that uh tackles a very interesting story uh in in really interesting ways and and raises some profoundly religious questions i think so mm-hmm. um, Michael, did you have anything else
0: to add to that uh, no i don't
2: okay um well then let's kind of go to a let's flash forward to a a kind of horror figure that's particularly popular right now uh and i think the subgenre of the that seems to be most deeply embedded in our culture currently is the zombie movie um for example the walking dead is this a phenomenon, apparently. I think, um, although I, I actually, apparently,
1: have
2: <laughs> I have a thing with zombie movies. I find them utterly depressing, and so I kind of avoid. Uh, like, sort of these end of civilization narratives are very. I, I guess they offend the humanist in me, and so I, I, uh, I, I find them very not so much scary but depressing. And, and so I, and I see. Haven't... See,
0: I'm I'm deeply apocalyptic, and yet I'm so tired of zombie <laughs> movies. That it's just such a it's such a bore. Now everything <laughs> is zombie, zombie apocalypse. <laughs> (laughs) Zombie apocalypse. Shut up.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, uh, maybe there's so there's two ways to be dismissive of this genre, I guess. Then, but uh, this is a figure though that has explicitly religious origins, Um, and yet the cinematic version is often even purely scientific. So, like Twenty Eight Days Later. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the origins of this figure, and then talk about what social fears it's historically addressed in various time periods? And here, feel free to speculate and theorize all you want.
0: Sure and I'm I'm no expert but I have seen a few zombie movies at least. Um zombies come from Haitian voodoo culture. And a zombie is a corpse that has been reanimated by a sorcerer, I believe. So as you say there's there's a religious dimension to this that is generally left out. You don't see a lot of uh sorcerers in zombie movies. Um, Zombie movies go back further than George Romero. I think most people think the zombie movie starts in 1968. In fact, there's a movie from the late 20s, early 30s called White Zombie, which is where the kind of horror rock band White Zombie gets their name. (laughs) Um, But really, George Romero's uh, Night of the Living Dead in 1968 is what makes the zombie movie a cultural phenomenon. And that, that movie is... I believe it's also public domain now isn't it isn't it also available yes. for free on YouTube?
2: It it is, yes.
0: Um the Romero living dead movies. The best of which by the way is not Night of the Living Dead but um Dawn of the Dead, the the sequel. Um are about conformity, right? Because you have these kind of unthinking hordes of brainless creatures staggering around it's 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 a little bit like the wasteland the the scene in the wasteland where you have the uh the crowd of the undead walking over london bridge Uh, uh, a image by the way that actually shows up in 28 days later Mm. um so so it's it's this this vision of life and death how can people how can people be technically alive but in reality not living from within in a, in a kind of existentialist way, and, and you you see that very clearly in Dawn of the Dead because they go the survivors go to hole up in a shopping mall, which allows Romero to make a number of very funny observations about consumerism and pop culture. So when the zombies make it to the shopping mall, they act basically the way people acted shopping malls. They just kind of walk around trying things on and what have you. In eating brains, but um, (laughs) other than that, they they act the way people normally act. Um, Now, I I have seen fewer of the new zombie movies, but it seems to me that especially with this, especially with that term "zombie apocalypse," and and especially with when they they begin to uh, reappear—twenty-eight days later notwithstanding—the zombie movie and the the zombie TV show make a comeback after the financial crash in two thousand eight. I think it's rather clearly. Expressing the fear of the end of civilization, right? I mean, this is Western culture's in decline, and so this is this is what we have to look forward to. It's just a, a complete collapse of society. How can you have a society that runs when ninety uh, percent of the civilians are uh, are are zombies, right? I mean, and the the one that I thought did that very cleverly and and with some humor, which is what is lacking from a lot of these zombie pictures. Is uh, *Zombieland* the, uh, mm. the the movie with Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg? I thought it, it better than any of the other new zombie movies. It made the point about the end of civilization um, intelligently and with some uh, with some fun to it. But, although yes. I have, I, I must say, I have not seen *The Walking Dead*. It, uh, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm I'm pretty much tired of hearing about the zombie apocalypse, so I <laughs> I have avoided *The Walking Dead*. Have either of you seen that show?
2: No, I haven't. I watched the first two episodes. It's on Netflix, and and I, it's excellent. It was fine, you know, storytelling and, and and television. But it's just to me, it's a very depressing story that I, I can't. Uh, it's not so scary to me. It's 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 depressing, and so to me, I can't. Uh, I, I try to shield myself from that to some degree. Although and, 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 Zombieland and, 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 is and not.
0: It, and it kind of has to be depressing, right? Because the the zombie myth, not the zombie myth, but the, the zombie movie is, among other things, about seeing the people you love become not the people you love. It, right. It, it,
2: yeah, it's all about loss. Yeah. And what, that's one thing that in the first, uh, maybe the first episode or second, well, I only watched the two. It had to be one of those two. Uh, mm-hmm. that I thought they did very well was at one point the, the main character the sheriff who sort of takes puts on the the robes of his former profession even though that civilization that that provided that structure is gone um is sort of like apologizing to these corpses recognizing their former humanity in a way that uh you don't often see in a zombie movie they're not just monsters they're, they're fallen humans in some ways that um is very kind of moving and profound which is maybe why i couldn't continue um with with the show myself but one i thought if- i
0: thought 28 days later did that very well as as, as well in, in that movie it is a um it's like a rage virus people catch and from the time they contract it they have 60 seconds before they turn into this very fast moving nasty zombie-like creature and, and and at one point you have this group of people who's been together for most of the length of the movie and the older one the kind of father figure contracts the virus and they have to shoot him because if they don't shoot him he will kill them and turn them all into this, these rage monsters as well and and it, it is it is played as the terrible decision that it is you know that there's there's it's a sophie's choice um and, and it, it is played as a tragic necessity and and you know i i, I liked that movie I, I never saw the sequel because i heard it was lousy but the uh, the original 28 days later is a is a fine movie i think it
2: is I did see the sequel and it wasn't lousy it was good um I thought but it it was uh um uh, the, you know they always have to up the scale on the sequels and then that, i think was the problem so but and and i think that's what one thing that makes zombie land so effective is that it, it sort of strips it down further like you know what i mean and, and i think Woody the one you know woody harrelson's meditation about the loss of twinkies in that like they'll, they'll never be twinkies again and his quest is to sort of find the last remaining twinkies of civilization um is it, like funny and, and silly but also like like pretty profound when you think about like what it is our that our civilization has has sort of come to depend on is defining itself and when that's gone how sad that is even if it's petty and and trite so um Nathan I I jumped over you though
1: oh no 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 no, that's that's fine I well one of the things I, I think is interesting is the sort of merger of the Frankenstein myth and the zombie myth in these more recent films because I the way that I understand it and I haven't seen The Walking Dead but very often these new zombie movies have less to do with sorcery, like you were saying, and more to do with biological weapons and viruses and those sorts of sort of weaponized organic phenomena. I mean, is mm-hmm. that a fair assessment of things?
2: Yeah, uh, and I don't know if it's ever defined what happened in Walking Dead but okay, uh, all yes, right that that is typically it's it's become a a virus sort of thing, yes
1: yeah, so I mean i I, I think that you know that that biologizing of the zombie myth is something that you know is, is certainly telling i mean it's it's not something that again i and you know i I keep using the horizon metaphor, but it's not something that comes into our world from something entirely alien, but it's something that's always inherent there and i think that, that that shift in the mythology is cer- certainly something worth thinking about you know I, I i like i said i've not seen walking dead but i i think of the the reavers from the uh television series firefly and then later on the movie serenity uh and you know the fact that they are former human beings who because of this raging space virus become these cannibalistic killing machines uh, and it, and it's the same sort of dynamic you're talking about. I mean, there is this terror that comes from the fact that this body uh, that is now destroying things used to be a a human existence. So I you know I think that's where the terror of the zombie movie specifically comes in. Yeah, and and,
2: and I, I agree, and I think that it. I while I think it is sort of overplayed culturally, and it's just become a. A sort of petty thing and you know you have zombie walks and all these sorts of things in, in communities as fundraisers uh my at case western where i did my graduate work there was a yearly uh humans versus zombies week-long game uh, that the students would play on campus which i actually thought was kind of cool given <laughs> well given that those students typically are, are very sort of serious-minded and, and technologically oriented that they're doing something creative I, I i gave them props for that so but um um but i think that uh At its heart, though, there is what michael 's talking about conformity uh like it is uh, the way with romero 's kind of reinvention of the genre um like that has become sort of central and and this sort of particularly the critique of consumerism uh as a defining element of our humanity and I think that that 's kind of what um is at stake and 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 when you have like he's talking about the shopping mall Uh, in the land of the dead. This is a sort of a late Romero movie of maybe five or six years ago. Now um, that's actually, I think pretty good. I I could watch this one when the remnants of civilization attempt to rebuild, it becomes this sort of um, uh, kind of hyper-libertarian fantasy that's built strictly on luxury consumerism. And so you have these sort of low members of society who are out sort of protecting the rich from from zombies and bringing back you know goods from the former civilization that they can sort of uh, have you know there's fine wines and 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 they live in this sort of essentially kind of shopping mall sort of complex um, and and uh, uh, that becomes a very kind of strict like uh, like political statement I think um, which gets to me like when i see a zombie movie i think of it as a critique of of libertarianism i to me i to me it's it's clearly um like pointing at the kind of folly of the individual and when you have a mass of individuals who are strictly about their own consumptive needs, it becomes a zombie horde, basically, and and, <laughs> and and it leads to the end of civilization. Now, I'm sort of playing my political hand here, and I apologize for the, our libertarian friends, but this is, I think, a, a powerful you know warning against the extremes of libertarianism, uh, at, at the very least. Um, and so that would that would be sort of one thing I would say about it. The other thing, and I don't want to harp too much about zombies. I, I don't like them, but I have a lot to say about them for some reason. Um, <laughs> Is I, I, have you guys thought about the distinction between the fast and the slow moving zombie? No.
0: I mean, I, I, I know that the distinction exists and I know I prefer the slow moving zombie.
2: Well, I, I was at a conference once. and I just wanted to run this past other, uh, you know, some smart people and, and see what they thought of this <laughs> argument. So, um, are you talking uh, about uh, us? Yes, yes. You guys are the smart people today. Um, the, I, I heard somebody make an argument that the fast moving zombie is a function of the, shift from a Cold War fear of communism uh, when you have this sort of faceless mass of, of uh, bureaucracy that is the danger to a fear of terrorism when a single um, entity can sort of come out of nowhere and get you by surprise. And, and mm-hmm. I found it to be like a, a somewhat compelling, but I just wanted to see what your initial thoughts about that were.
1: Oh, it could be. I mean, I, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about the distinction in those terms, but, I mean, it makes sense on its face. Yeah, yeah I mean, I,
0: I I think I would have just blamed it on Hollywood's need to make everything faster, bigger, louder.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, but,
0: but, but, I mean, I mean it, it, in terms of a philosophical analysis or a sociological analysis, it sounds, you know, reasonable.
2: Yeah, yeah, and particularly when you see the invention of that trope uh is sort of with the, i believe with the remake of night of the living dead or i'm sorry dawn of the dead yeah the, uh, the
0: james gunn
2: yeah and, and it seems to me that does sort of explicitly deal with fears of terrorism i thought it was a compelling way to perhaps overread something that's trivial and stupid but um, um
1: <laughs> well else? when what when was when was, <laughs> when was that movie out of curiosity 2000... i would say oh four
0: no i think it was wait hang on a second i was in omaha when slither came out and that was his that was his follow-up so it probably was 2004 come to think of it
1: okay the only reason i ask is because like i said the reavers from the firefly series were in effect fast-moving zombies and i believe that was 2002
0: but nobody's going to criticize joss whedon you know if there's if there's there's one person the nerds on the internet aren't going to get upset about it's joss whedon
1: yeah true enough true enough Because I
0: I remember when when that remake came out, everybody was so mad about the fast-moving zombies. And I agree. I I think that's less effective than the the slow-moving ones.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it becomes more about, like, action and less about atmosphere. And and I feel like something's lost when you remove the the silence from a horror movie on some level. So, um, yeah, that's just my opinion.
0: The other brilliant thing about those Romero zombie movies is that they never even, as far as I remember, never come close to explaining why this is happening.
2: Right. They keep a, a metaphysical option open. I know that in uh, Dawn of the Dead, there's like some figure on television preaching that saying, you know, when hell is full, uh, the dead will start work, walking the earth. And so there does they sort of at least put a figure in there that is trying and maybe like Nietzsche's madman uh, sort of assigning <laughs> um, some sort of metaphysical consequence for, uh, a you know, a a prolonged period of sin, uh, for, uh, uh upon humanity. So, I, but that is never sort of verified in those movies, which to me makes it all the more creepy and, and, and more interesting. So, but, um, this I think is a good transition though, uh, into, uh, sort of more Christian, uh, theology, um, horror movies have a long history of antagonism with Christian culture. And uh, particularly from Christians to horror movies, I think. Uh, and I think it's a tension that ranks right up there for me with rock and roll. Like that was <laughs> two two bad things: rock and roll, monster movies. And so, uh, Nathan, can you maybe narrate uh, a little bit of the controversy, either historically or in some other philosophical way, and then maybe find some way to claim a philosophical function for horror uh, and its uh, relationship with the Christian imagination.
1: Well, one of the things, I, I did a little bit of poking around, but I didn't to do an extensive historical analysis, but it seems like, at the very least, I don't want to say that the genesis is with the 1960s, but it seems like the Christian antagonism towards horror movies intensified, certainly, with the with the 60s. Uh, so the sense that I get is that the fear of rock and roll and the fear of horror movies largely went hand in hand, largely as... Uh, the generation now known as the baby boomers uh, sort of came of age, there was this ongoing fear that innovations in entertainment, whether that be cinematic or musical, uh, were somehow going to destroy the American culture, as the the American Protestant culture, let's be real specific as we know it. Now, I think that the rise of evangelicalism as distinct from fundamentalism certainly has something to do with that. The culture of standing against uh, pop culture artifacts, again, I'm not saying that it wasn't there because certainly you've got treatises against uh, jazz music, you've got treatises against card playing, things like that in the 1920s, 1930s, but it's largely with the 50s and 60s that you get that antagonism. Now, what's interesting is that sometime in the late 80s and the 90s that neighborhood certainly the opposition to such things doesn't go away but you also have a parallel movement that arises where you have more of a move of appropriation so you get uh again not the beginnings of but certainly the explosion of sort of copycat christian rock uh you also get in my view i mean the the beginnings of you know yeah, I mean, I'll say that sort of Christian rock culture that eventually gives rise to the left behind movies and things like that which are, you know, something like a Christian horror movie, I guess. Uh it has Kirk Cameron, that's pretty horrible.
0: Uh but uh Also like <laughs> Thief, Thief in the Night from the 70s about
1: Oh yeah, good point, good point. Run with that, Michael.
0: Well, I mean, I never saw it. I'm I'm a little too young for it, but the, I, I gather that it was a formative experience in the life of many evangelicals of that era. The, this this kind of, uh, you know, second coming movie about the people who get left behind and whatnot. I never, like yeah, I said, true I never enough, true it.
1: enough. I, I'd forgotten about the Hal Lindsey wave of all that in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, that does certainly predate Left Behind and all of that good stuff. But, uh, so, I mean, really in my mind where these two streams, the avoidance and the appropriation flow together in the most fascinating place... Is in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ Uh, because really the aesthetic of that film is that of a slasher film. Uh, You know, I mean, you get that 20 minute long torture scene uh, where you've got blood spraying and you've got, you know, nasty weapons and you've got, you know, all sorts of things. And, you know, this is the kind of scene that when I was a kid in the mid 80s, you know, people would say, This is why you don't go to horror movies. This is why it's bad to go to horror movies. And yet here it is in a film marketed explicitly to North American Christians, uh, and then of course, I mean, you've also got the fact that that film is chock full of Catholic iconography. When, when I was in, you know, a kid, the evangelicals were rabidly anti-Catholic, but that's another podcast in its own right.
0: Isn't uh, isn't the isn't the Pope involved with the Antichrist in the uh, Left Behind series?
1: I believe so, yeah, but it's been a while. I only ever read the first novel in that series just so I could read it and say, yeah, I've read it and it's bad, and yeah, <laughs> I've read it. And, yeah, I never yeah, read it. I never yeah. read them either, so I, I can't. Uh, but I, I remember hearing that, yes. And I know in The Omen,
2: the orig- I didn't see the remake, but in The Omen, there's a, a bishop-like figure, a, a, a clearly Catholic figure, who's responsible for uh, the adoption of the Antichrist child, into this, uh, into Gregory Peck's family, and so there is sort of, I think, a uh, 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 anti papal uh, <laughs> strain to this eschatology. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, I mean, you know, I I think that you know, like I said, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ is the most interesting confluence of those two movements as far as a place in the Christian imagination. Uh, I'm inclined to go along with John Milbank's thesis in the book Theology and Social Theory that says that. The most influential ideas of the modern era are more often than not uh, Christian heresies dressed up pretty. Uh, So, you know, in his book, he's not interested in monster movies. He's interested in um, Marx and Nietzsche and Thomas Hobbes and so on and so forth. And he really does a nice job narrating the ways in which, you know, they are taking Christian doctrine in a sort of – distorted form and turning it into secular philosophy if i could take that movement and move it over into the realm of horror movies uh i think that what we've got with the modern horror movie uh and i'm thinking mainly within my own lifetime i I honestly haven't done a whole lot of philosophical thinking about bella lugosi and boris karloff but if you think of the slasher movies of my own teenage years and the you know, the torture movies of my college years, and then, you know, so on and so forth. I think that what you've got there is a desire on the part of moviegoers to, I guess, rekindle an awareness of terror and evil, which in the face of sort of late capitalist numbness is something approaching a sense of sin. Uh, so, I mean, if it, you know, I'm, I'm obviously psychologizing that and perhaps I'm trivializing it. Uh, but I have to ask myself, you know, I mean, why is it that someone would want to watch the seventh or eighth Saw sequel? Uh, and I mean, about the only reason that I can give that doesn't turn those people into zombies, which maybe I should just go ahead and do that, uh, <laughs> is to say that there is a desire there to escape the numbness of modern life. So, uh, what do you think, Danny? Did I, did I... Do something adequately theological there? Or did I just slip into crass psychologizing?
2: No, no, I, I leave all that to you. Uh, that, That's—I uh, <laughs> thought what you said was very interesting and very true. And I think that it seems to me the horror movies, very often, even in their more more sort of like crass and 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 violent incarnations, are about punishment for immorality, right? I mean, this is sort of the. Uh, um, the convention of a movie like Seven, when you think about this, this is detective yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the someone is punishing sinners, right? And so this is a, uh, I, I think a, like a, an explosion of a sort of uh, retribute, retributive uh, aspect of of the Christian faith. I think when you if you believe in sin, uh, and uh, I think that sometimes horror movies can show you an image of a sinful world. Uh, albeit sometimes without the possibility for salvation, and I think that this is that absence at the center of much horror of much horror is 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 christ and in its absence, it becomes very apparent that this is um, the function of christianity then is to sort of shield us from the horror of of sin and and I think that mm. uh, you can look at a lot a broad spectrum of movies of from the silence to the swear words era uh, of uh, horror movies that sort of talk about that. Halloween, for example, is a, um, I think a legitimately great movie. The original one, the the remake is terrible, but um, the the, the original one is a legitimately great movie regardless of genre. And I think that it it sort of establishes many of the tropes of the slasher movie, but at its heart is that um, who is ultimately being punished is, are the people who are, like partaking in sin. Right. And, and I'm not saying that the victims deserve to die in those movies, but, uh, those movies are like meditating on sin in a way that I think is consistent.
1: Right. Right. Um,
2: with and and it's, and it's harder
1: movie. to think about it that way in a post scream era, because again, that movie is so self-referential. They point out the fact that it's the minorities and the promiscuous girls who are going to die first. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so. Exactly. Right. Right. But even
2: that, that crass like conclusion that horror movies often do Uh, like revert to is, I think, uh, like, uh, I think it points to things that are, need to be considered about our faith. Uh, And so uh, I don't necessarily, I I don't, I think that it's cheesy. Uh, I can say that and and still see what it's trying to do kind of on a philosophical level. Uh, Michael, what do you think?
0: It makes sense to me. I mean, I I, I have definitely heard people talk about um, the kind of incipient morality of of those of those films that they're almost old testament justice
1: yes mm-hmm. and That's, and then i mean and this is something that i've I actually talked about danny with our student alex genetti after your uh yeah. round table on halloween yes the fact of the matter is there's another literary strain of horror stories the hp lovecraft strain where there is no morality it's just a dark and unknowable force that's not malevolent so much as indifferent uh, that really doesn't seem to come into horror movies very much. And you would right. think that, you know, there would be at some point an entrance of that, but it doesn't seem like there's an appetite for that among moviegoers. Well, it's interesting
2: that Lovecraft is famously difficult to adapt to cinema, right? Uh, and, yeah, and, and I think that's part of why. It, 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 like, the genre of horror almost demands there to be some sort of morality to violate, right? And, and yeah. so uh-huh. um, when you like take that away, I think that Lovecraft doesn't work as well. And where it does work well are in movies that adapt him uh, differently, like a movie like Hellboy, for example, which is clearly sure. Lovecraftian, but has at its center this sort of good versus evil. Like, And I think that's the way to make Lovecraft like work. Like, right, I, and at the I, end, yeah.
1: I mean, has that sort of family loyalty ethos that – would be alien to a lovecraft story exactly right yeah so have you read any lovecraft michael
0: i tried to a couple weeks ago and something distracted (laughs) me and i never actually got into it i never liked (laughs) poe so i don't get the sense i'm going to i would like lovecraft very much
1: that's fair enough yeah
2: some of it's quite you know cheesy and the writing is like very ornate and and sort of overblown but it, it, it carries with it an atmosphere that is, is utterly creepy, and I, I happen to really like H.P. Lovecraft. I actually taught him over the summer here, and it uh, and, and actually worked pretty well. I had students really enjoy reading that story. So I know
0: Grubbsy's but, a big uh, Lovecraft fan.
2: Yeah. yeah. He's apparently become a cottage industry in Providence. They have sort of whole tours um, centered around Lovecraft now. So. Oh, I thought he lived uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, no, he's Rhode Island. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> so.
2: well, uh, let's start with Michael uh, after this next question. Let's all sort of just take a specific creature or subgenre or whatever, uh, however you want to approach it or theme in horror and share why you think it's particularly interesting and how it can speak to or at our faith. Michael, can you start? And then pass the the severed head to Nathan.
0: (laughs) So I didn't watch horror movies when I was a kid, but I did have access at my elementary school library to a book called The Encyclopedia of Fantastic Creatures, which I checked out at least five times and read with great horror. Um, And and the one that scared me the most, I think, was The Werewolf. Um, I remember it said that one theory about where werewolves come from is sleeping with your bed in the moonlight during a full moon, and I, I remember asking my parents if I could rearrange my room so that my bed would not be in the window. And I, you know, I, I still think of this any I sleep in a room where the bed is next to the window, because uh, it clearly made a big impression on me. And what's so scary about the Wolfman, and what makes it particularly, what makes him uh, particularly appealing, I think, to young people, is that it is all about the Things that you don't think yourself capable of doing that you are in fact capable of doing—it's—it's it's kind of the same thing that makes Jekyll and Hyde such an interesting story—is—is is, you know you you think of yourself as beholden to civilization, you think of yourself as gentle and reasonable and kind, and in fact there's a monster inside you that comes out at periods you cannot control. And what's worse, um, built into the werewolf legend, is the fact that the werewolf always kills the person he loves the most. And, and, and you know, and you think about this for any period of time, and it's it's a it's a really terrifying thought. But it it goes back, I think. Well, not back because it predates this, but I think it dovetails nicely with Oscar Wilde's poem, "The Ballad of Red and Gale" or "Jail." Excuse me, where he says, um, "Each man kills the things he, the thing he loves." Um, which seems to be kind of a universal human experience, right? The the, the people who suffer from your deviations from civilization, from rationality, from gentleness, are always the people who are closest to you because they're the ones you feel most comfortable lashing out at. So, yay werewolves. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and also they take their shirt off and fight vampires or whatever. (laughs)
1: i <laughs> oh, don't go there.
0: <laughs> the great the great horror uh, films of our time.
1: There you go. Oh man. Uh well I want to talk about uh Godzilla, the the towering city crashing monster movie genre. Uh and what's fascinating about that is that like so many of the other things we're talking about it emerges out of the fears and anxieties of a historical moment, namely the nuclear testing in the South Pacific. So this is one of those movies where not at all coincidentally, uh, the giant lizard, you know, radioactive fire breathing lizard, uh, emerges out of the sea to attack Tokyo. Uh, and it's one of those things where, and you know, it's, it's my brother, Ryan, who's been a guest host on this program before told me about this in the original Japanese version, uh, as the, World War II veterans are going off to fight Godzilla, what they are crying out at the monster is, the American nuclear bombs didn't do us in, neither will you, Godzilla.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, it is, again, you know, thinking about it as a Japanese film, uh, it's a continual wrestling with the fact that Japan at some point awakened this monster from across the sea that destroyed it, And looking at it, you know, as someone who grew up in the prosperity that came after that monster destroyed Japan, uh, it's definitely something that encourages me to think about history as something that doesn't have one storyline, but which has a plurality of narratives. Danny, what do you got? Well, I was actually going to go with werewolves as well,
2: um, but I'll i will uh, I'll, uh, kind of go on the fly. I'm, so, I'm and, sorry, Danny. No, 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 no. It's okay. Uh, I'll, I'd love to hear about werewolves. That's sort of my favorite monster. And uh, But I'll sort of go on the fly and talk about ghosts instead. But one thing I want to add to the werewolf thing is that this is another figure who uh, – there are exceptions, but almost never is there a cure for the afflicted, who's always, usually a sympathetic character sort of cursed in some ways. And this is where I think the the failing of the these twilight werewolf things. I I I feel like <laughs> if werewolfism isn't a curse then it's not interesting. If it's some sort right. of like spiritual freedom, you know, oneness with nature, it's just a bunch of hippie bull crap and so I I don't find it interesting. And who, so who um, is the
0: best character in the Harry Potter franchise? Remus Lupin.
2: <laughs> you know, I've yet to watch Harry Potter yet. I I have to speak uh, read the my books. So. They're yeah. Good. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, and I feel like the fact that he has to die for his own sins is, is an interesting, uh, and for the sins of the community, because the sin is passed on to him from someone else. I think that that is like a, a stark absence of of sort of the idea of salvation. And I think that this is, um, like, I think that the image of salvation is is clear in its absence in, in the idea of the werewolf, and and this is where Jesus sort of comes in uh, um, to the equation. But since not, uh, Michael already talked about that, let me just talk about ghosts. I already talked about The Shining as this sort of, um, I think, a sort of a preeminent sort of ghost movie, and 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 there has a, been a resurgence of ghost movies since. I, I, I'm sure that it's sort of an existing thing. I'm thinking back to since the Sixth Sense came out, there was a yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, an interest in ghost movies. And the same year the Sixth Sense came out, there's another excellent one called um, uh, Stir of Echoes with Kevin Bacon. It's a very good movie by written by uh, based on a book by I think Richard Matheson. Yeah, you know, I actually like,
1: like Stir of Echoes better. Yeah, wow! It's a great, great movie. Yeah, um,
2: and um, but the the ghost, I think. The ghost narrative, essentially, very often I mean for one thing, it assumes an afterlife that uh, is consistent in some ways. We can find uh, biblical stories where ghosts appear to people, and so there is some sort of consistency with a you know a Christian worldview there um, but it 's also some sort of um, at its heart is some sort of attempt at redemption, um, even from uh, somehow the past is haunting us in some way and begging us to sort of, uh, redeem either ourselves and, or the deceased in some ways. And so I feel like the ghost as a, as a genre, as a, as a, as a story, uh, can somehow speak to the kind of broader historical community of man and that we are sort of, yes, cursed by, uh, what our forebears have, have left us with, but we're also then charged with trying to redeem, uh, uh, that curse, uh, and so I feel like the ghost story resonates on many levels and and particularly lately, the fact that so many ghost stories deal with children either as the the spirits themselves or as the kind of communicative you know uh figure uh, with those spirits, I think is kind of profound and, and a little bit sad uh, when we because uh, it clear to me that we 're sort of as a society beginning to think about the legacy we're leaving and and i think that the ghost movie is a sort of uh, a way to uh uh me- meditate on that and then of course there's this whole japanese tradition of ghost movies which do something completely different that i don't have the cultural bearings to quite get my mind around on some level but um but the sort of western uh, ghost movie i think is one that i think is uh particularly interesting um have you seen any movies recently that about that like ghosts that
1: um trying to think i'd stir of echoes and sixth sense i certainly remember i, I haven't watched any more recently i don't think
0: yeah, yeah i don't yeah, think I seen it either
1: so that's something i used to care much for but i is i, I
2: maybe because i'm getting older and about to become a ghost sooner than later myself i suppose uh i i feel like uh it's something that's uh like i've, I've been more and more drawn to lately so well let's do one more around the horn um uh, and kind of take a specific movie that you find particularly essential and, and maybe tell us why. Uh do you want to start with Nathan?
1: Yeah, uh it, it's one that I don't necessarily like a whole lot, but I think it's an interesting artifact in the in the sort of trajectory of horror movies and that is uh Bram Stoker's Dracula from the 90s. Uh oh, this man. is <laughs> What now?
0: I said, "Oh man."
1: <laughs> this is a film that very intentionally distances itself from the Bella Lugosi Dracula. Uh, it's one that really takes all of the humor out of the vampire story. Uh, it takes, honestly, a great deal of the sort of allure of the vampire story. Uh, and it is this utterly serious, I guess, re- I mean, remake is, is about the only term I can think of, of the Bram Stoker novel. Uh, you know, one of the things about this movie is that, you know, you've got, if not skillful actors, then at least very well-known actors in the moment, uh, Keanu Reeves and Anthony Hopkins playing some of the main roles, uh, you've got, I mean, for its moment, I mean, some fairly, you know, state of the mid nineties art special effects going on. Uh, but really in my mind, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula was one of those movies that shows that technology was not going to be the future of horror movies. Uh, And I don't think it's coincidental that one of the biggest grossing horror movies, and and one that I'll enjoy, I'll go ahead and say it, I'm sure I'm going to get calls from the bad taste in movies police for this, Uh, but the Blair Witch Project, which is low budget, uh, the acting is terrible, but it is something that is a lot more enjoyable to watch than the high-budget Bram Stoker's Dracula just goes to show that ultimately storytelling and film craft are ultimately going to be the future of horror movies in a way that special effects would not be. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, what what movie would you pick on?
0: Well, I uh, decided to watch a horror movie for this show, and I went through... We we just got Hulu Plus, so I went through to see what they saw. We watched a movie called Carnival of Souls, Ah. which came out in, I believe, 1962. And it is the director's one film, and it is about a young woman who is involved in a drag racing accident, miraculously survives, and then immediately moves across the country to Salt Lake City to become a church organist. And that's important, because there's this very insistent subplot that she just sees this as a job. She says over and over again, A church is just a place of business. She doesn't care about her soul. She doesn't care about anything but money. Not like you make a lot of money as a church organist. But she she's just kind of alienated from everything that could possibly be life giving. She doesn't want relationships with our human beings. She doesn't um want to see a psychiatrist for the problems she's having. She doesn't want to she certainly has no interest in religion. And yet she's haunted because there is a very disturbing um, man who is kind of following her across the country, um, showing up at the most disturbing of places. And he is a um, – he's actually played by the director. I, I forget the director. Do you remember the director's name, Danny?
2: I can't remember. It's it right Herc,
0: now. Herc Harvey or something like that. It's a funny name. But uh, – What you get in this movie is a a precursor to the Night of the Living Dead pictures because one of the um, indelible images from the movie is this carnival of souls, this deserted carnival kind of inhabited by dead spirits all dancing around. And and it it is very... At one point in the movie, they all follow after her in a very proto-Romerian way. And, And also you get a precursor to the weirder more psychological horror movies of somebody like David Lynch who, who revered this movie and you can really see, you can really draw a line directly from it to Blue Velvet. Um, so yeah, it's it's worth a watch. It is, it is a remarkably frightening movie for something that has no gore um, and, and which remains for the most part psychological. But like I said, I was afraid to go into my laundry room <laughs> after watching it.
2: very good yeah it's very weird and off-putting uh and just sort of disorienting and and, and more
0: proof that the low budget horror movies are actually more effective because they're so uncanny i mean the the acting in that movie is terrible i believe it is mostly local people without much training and then I, i read that the um Lead actress is Strasbourg trained which I don't understand because she is one of the worst actresses I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but she, um, I mean, but it works. I mean, she needs to be off-putting. She needs to be alienated. She needs, she needs to not seem like a human being for reasons. Let, let me put it. You, you will guess the twist of this movie in the first two minutes of it. it it's, it's, it's a played-out twist. But, um, you know, it, it makes sense that she is a terrible actress. It makes sense that the movie is poorly made in a lot of ways, although there's some really beautiful... Um, there are some really beautiful shots, um, nevertheless. So, yeah, it's a good movie.
2: It is. Well, and I want to kind of take us back to The Wolfman, um, and, and particularly I, I want to like encourage people to think about the remake. This was 2009 maybe or 10. It, it's not that old, um, with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. Uh, looking at it in juxtaposition – uh, against the original is kind of interesting as a illustration, I think, of how the horror movie really does sort of reflect on cultural values uh, without necessarily even realizing it. And I feel like if you look at the the story, is this Larry Talbot, this uh, young-ish man who sort of comes back home and and sort of uh, to his uh, ancestral home. Which is this sort of uh, village in Europe? Somehow, it's a, in the original. It's a particularly kind of netherworld um, that you don't exactly know where it could exist. But um, and his father is this sort of powerful male figure. And Mary Talbot gets bit by a werewolf, and and he eventually uh, becomes the werewolf himself, and has to be sort of, uh, wreck, you know, killed at the end. This is sort of not a secret how the werewolf movie ends. But uh, in the first movie. Claude rains who played the invisible man uh was also was was the father and, and he is a uh, like preternaturally good person like he's just sort of the the patriarch not only of the family but of the community so he's sort of an image of paternalism and and so when Larry good man though he is uh, is infected with the sort of uh ancient sin of of, of you know monstrosity and werewolfism uh, he uh, in the end has to be sort of brought back, um, uh, by the father, uh, into sort of, he has to be redeemed through death by the father, um, who uses the stick. So there's obvious, there's this sort of obvious sort of phallus involved. And so, uh, if you think about that movie as being a, um, like just a reaffirmation of assumed cultural values of the time, uh, and then think about what the revision of the second movie, uh, it not only revises the story, but it revises the ideology. Uh, like in this case, the father is a much more sort of duplicitous figure who is very much himself responsible for what's going wrong in this community. And, and in, in this case, a young woman uh, is, is sort of has it on her board, his her shoulders, played, played by Emily Blunt, to um, um, sort of redeem Uh, the figure and the community from uh, the evil. And I'm trying to talk in vague generalities about these movies, uh, although I I fear I'm spoiling them uh, horribly. But um, uh, uh, I I don't know any other way to sort of talk about that. But in this way, it's such a refutation of paternalism that it is almost, it is just as cliched as the affirmation of paternalism was in the first one. And so uh, I love both of these movies, by the way, and I think that Tel Toro does a remarkable job of, ch- of channeling Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, uh, and, and you can see images, like or, or like perform- in his performance, you can see his face just sort of morph into the facial expressions that Lon Chaney would use. There is a moment where he's walking across the moor in the exact manner that Lon Chaney does. So it's a really fine performance in his part. And uh, and and I think the movie itself is an illustration of how these movies, uh, the remake itself, when looked at and how it revises the original, it, it's a uh, an illustration of how horror movies in general really draw on cultural assumptions and give us access to see how it is we see ourselves in the world. Um, and, and in both cases, neither one of them challenges you know orthodoxy, um, but uh, I think it's it's pretty instructive in that way. So. Um, have any of you seen uh, either of those movies?
0: I have not. No, no. I
2: haven't either. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, me being the werewolf guy. I think yeah, I know. <laughs> sort of, those are sort of bookends. And and in the middle, my favorite movie is actually an American Werewolf in London. That's my favorite movie, General. And, uh, and, and uh, I feel like in some ways, American Werewolf in London revisits The Wolfman in 1981, like 40 years later. And now it is, you know, pushing 40 years old. The Wolfman very much incorporates American werewolf in London and the werewolf into its, its revision. So it, it very much draws on two movies to create this new version of the Wolfman. So it, like seeing those three movies together is, it would be an interesting exercise, I think so.
1: Um, well, uh, Nathan, you want to give us a hint about what's going on next week? Sure. Next week. Uh, and our listeners should have seen this link on the Facebook page by now. We're going to be talking about, uh, Nietzsche's parable of the madman. It's a section from the gay science. Uh, it's only about 550 words, so listeners, you can read it in 10 minutes flat easily. Uh, we're going to be talking about the text itself, but also the sort of afterlife of the famous aphorism within the text, God is dead.
0: I've mentioned yeah. we're going to be talking about that new... Uh Film coming to a motion picture theater near you.
2: How c- how could we avoid it? Spring of 2014, we, we wait with bated breath. So, um, <laughs> well, guys, thank you for indulging me uh, to this. I, I this is one of my you know pet topics, and, and I, I had a really great time talking to you. I, I appreciate the input you had. So, um, listeners, if you want to uh, keep up with us, or uh, send us an email about what you thought about today's show or any other show, our email is thechristianhumanist at gmail dot com. And you can find the website at christianhumanist.org. And for Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer, my name is Danny Anderson, uh, saying, let your sins be strong and your faith be strong.
0: I was working in the lab late one night, when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mess. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a
2: graveyard
0: smash. He did the match. It got on in a flash. He did the match. He did the monster match. From my love.